Baal. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we're separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn till the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servants pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Thus far, the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. It's a pretty awesome chapter. Nehemiah stands out as a real hero, doesn't he? He rallies God's people uh, to the work that's before them, even in the face of some pretty serious obstacles. The first obstacle, of course, is the threat of the surrounding enemies, which increases as the chapter goes on. And the second is the scope of the work that has to be completed. And with that and the threat of the enemies, another obstacle is the uh, despair of the, uh, of the workers themselves. Uh, the, the people, the, their, their heads begin to hang, their hands droop, their knees go weak. And yet Nehemiah is able to inspire the people to press on in the face of these obstacles and these hardships. And, you know, you, you can't help but picture Nehemiah here as uh, something akin or someone akin to William Wallace right, with, with the blue war paint on his face, on, the, on his horse riding back and forth between uh, the army as they're about to go to battle and shouting at his discouraged compatriots, they can take our lives, but they cannot take our freedom. That's Nehemiah, right? Isn't that verse 14? Doesn't that have a ring of that sort of inspirational speech on the battle lines? And I looked and I rose and I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. It's exciting, very heroic. But what Nehemiah does here is actually incomparable to any stirring speech ever given on the battle lines Israel's story is an underdog story for sure, but it's not a comparable, uh, it's not comparable to any other underdog story throughout human history, whether that's the Scots in the 14th century or the colonists in the 18th century. And the reason why this is unlike any other is because this underdog story is unlike any other is because the enemy that they're dealing with is greater the work that they have to accomplish is harder, and the victory that they attain is sweeter than anything else throughout the rest of human history. And these things are true because of the spiritual realities that are undergirding the work that's taking place in Nehemiah chapter 4 and the whole story. The enemy is greater, the work is harder, the victory is sweeter on account of the spiritual realities undergirding each. So let's consider those tonight. First, the enemy that Nehemiah is dealing with is greater than any other enemy. And that's not because Sanballat or 
Tobiah were particularly menacing, it's because they were puppets to none other than what the one Martin Luther called our ancient foe, right? Uh, they are puppets of the most menacing villain of all, Satan himself. Now you can look, if, if you want again, and skim the chapter and look for a reference to the devil and you won't find it, but no reference is needed. For the fact is simply this, anytime God's work, anytime God's work is threatened or opposed, the devil is behind it. Anytime God's work is threatened or opposed, the devil's behind it. It is his great goal to distract us from our calling to serve and to glorify the Lord. He does it today. He did it in Nehemiah's day. That's why ancient foe is a fitting title. He's been around from the beginning, Jesus said, and he's been lying since the beginning. That same sort of twisted speech is what's first being used here to get the people of God to give up on their work. Look at the beginning of the chapter, and you'll see there in verse uh, 2 and 3, uh, the, uh, the speech of the enemies of God's people, in particular verse 2, notice there are five rhetorical questions that are asked by Sambalat. Remember, he's the governor of Samaria. It's a neighboring region. He's jealous of Jerusalem um, regaining their status as a kingdom. So he scoffs at the workers and he says to some of his soldiers, uh, certainly though it seems like the, the word pressed on to Israel too, what are these feeble Jews doing? Translation, who do these Jews think they are? They're so weak and they're so small. Uh, he's calling out something that, that the Jews were already sensitive to, the fact that they were the least among the nations, that they were not mighty. And he's saying, who do they think they are to do something like this? He laughs then at their ambitions. Will they sacrifice? In other words, will they, do they actually think they're going to worship here again? Like, the way that, like they once did. He mocks their worth ethic. Will they rebuild it in a day? This is poking fun at how hard they're working. What, what, they think they're going to finish this up tonight? Do they not know how impossible the task is for, for anybody, let alone these feeble Jews? He makes them doubt their materials. Will they receive old burn-up stones or revive old burn-up stones? In other words, like all, they, all they're working with is the stuff that was left over from when the, the city was destroyed years earlier. They're calling into question the integrity of, of their structure. And then we learn in verse 3, Tobiah, right? He's, uh, he's that annoying sidekick of the bully whose job is just to you know, make sure everybody laughs at the bully's jokes and, or make sure that the bully's uh, um, mock, uh, jeers and mockings that they really land. And so you can kind of picture him you know, stepping behind Sam Bollett. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's right. And like, you know, I bet even if a little fox stepped on the walls that they would crumble, right? And he starts laughing and Sam Bollett looks at him and says, shut up, I, no, I don't need you, right? That's kind of the dynamic between Sam Bollett and Tobiah. But you see, in either case, uh, the Israelites are being ridiculed. And what does Nehemiah do in the face of such ridicule? Look at verse four, what does he do? Look there with me. Hear, O God, for we are despised. He prays. This sudden prayer takes us right to the moment in question. Notice Nehemiah does not say, and so I prayed. And so I prayed, hear, O our God, for we are despised. 
It's not that his prayer is part of the events that he's recording, uh, that he's narrating. Rather, listen to this, this is really interesting. At this moment, what happens? What happens is that the narrative becomes his prayer. He starts praying while he's writing. And so that means either that what we're reading here in Nehemiah 4 is a record like a diary that Nehemiah kept in that the moment this happened, he went home and he wrote about it and he was praying about it. That, that it's that immediate. Or, perhaps more likely, as he looked back on this event, maybe years later and was writing about it, he got so caught up in this moment remembering how hard, how difficult it was to be ridiculed by the enemies of God's people that he, he starts praying again. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. In either case, I want to say this, and maybe it sounds like a silly application, but bear with me. We learn that being made fun of is something worth praying about. Being made fun of is something worth praying about. I think when people mock us or they tease us or they speak poorly about us, and if that hurts us, we feel like, I just need to get over it. Um, I need to have thicker skin. I need to not be bothered by, by, by these things. And we feel like we're weak if we're bothered by them. And yet Nehemiah and an entire host of the Psalms would tell us otherwise. We learn when you read the Bible and you read it carefully that God's people understood that words hurt. That words are powerful. And when used against us, they can do great harm. And we should pray for God's provision, not, not just to give us a stiff upper lip. And so, you know, boys and girls, the young people here tonight, um, I'm certain that uh, some of you are bullied by friends at school or in sports, or you're bullied by um, people in your family, and your feelings get really hurt by the things that they say about you, the way that they treat you. I want you to know that God cares about that. He cares about that. And you can, boys and girls, you can, and you should pray to God that the Lord would preserve you and protect you. Now, that's especially true when we're being made fun of or mocked because of our faith. That's what's happening here in Nehemiah 4. And that's what helps us to make sense of the rest of Nehemiah's prayer. What does he say? Turn back their taunts on their own heads. And give them up to be plundered in a land where they're captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Well, now that sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? But Nehemiah understands that when God's enemies mock God's people, God is the one who's ultimately being mocked. Uh, The taunts are nothing short of blasphemy. That's why Nehemiah says they provoked you to anger. And as a righteous man, he's indignant over this. But even so, we still wonder and we ask, is this the kind of prayer that we could make today? You know, what about the fact that Jesus came and he told us to love our enemies and to pray for them, not to pray against them? Well, those are good questions. And yes, things have changed tremendously now that Christ has come. And he's paved a way for God's enemies to be made God's friends. And we should never pray in a vindictive spirit for the demise of people who are out to get us. That's not allowed. 
but we're not allowed to have that personal animosity. I hate this individual because of what they do to me. No, you're to love that individual. And yet, even so, here's the key. There is an element of this prayer that still holds today, and we shouldn't be shy about it. You see, Nehemiah is distressed, not only because the enemies were tarnishing God's holiness, but because God's work was being threatened by them. And Nehemiah can't stand that stand for that, and we shouldn't stand for that either. When the church is threatened, the work of God is threatened, wherever that is, wherever the church might be, we must join with Nehemiah and pray that the Lord would thwart the work of the enemies at whatever the cost. Think about it. We pray that, that Christ would come quickly, do we not? I mean, that's a good prayer. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Well, what are we praying when we say that? What's implied in that prayer? When, when Jesus returns... That will have ramifications and implications for his enemies, for our enemies, for people who oppose the church. He will have dealings with them. When we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, we're asking that, or that finally, at long last, his will would be done perfectly here on earth as it's done in heaven. That will affect God's enemies. It will bring judgment when Christ comes again. When he returns, all that his enemies' work will be frustrated and brought to an end. And so our love for God's glory manifested in the world through the church should be such, our love for that glory should be such that when our enemies oppose it, we can't help but pray that their attempts would be defeated. That's why we pray, deliver us from the evil one, the Lord's Prayer, right? You know, it's a legitimate translation. We use the more familiar deliver us from evil in our worship, but it could easily be translated deliver us from the evil one. We said that Nehemiah's enemy is greater than any other. Well, because he's dealing with the devil, we deal with him too. And we pray, deliver us from the evil one, not just for our personal protection, but for the success of God's mission in the world. Well, that takes us to a second thing. This is a unique story in history because the enemy is greater than any other, but also the work is harder than any other. And again, I'm not speaking of constructing a wall. Zoom out from that. And what is the work that they're doing? They're doing God's work. And God's work is always harder because our sinful nature has no interest in doing God's work, in pleasing Him. Everything in our being fights against godliness. You know, I, I might not have particular interest in uh, taking out the trash on Wednesday night. Um, yeah, so I'm not really feeling it, but I can do it. That's not like the feeling I have deep in my uh, nature when it comes to serving God or his people. No, I war against that. I don't. It's not that I just don't feel like it. I hate it. I hate that idea in my sinful nature. We have a disdain for doing that which is spiritually good and true, for that which pleases God. And that disdain is not removed when you become a Christian, is it? Yes, now I have a new nature, but there's still that old man warring against it. The work of godliness is the hardest work that there is. But Nehemiah shows us the determination that all believers should have when it comes to doing God's work, no matter the obstacle, no matter the hang-ups. He presses on, and we must too. And he asks the Lord to bless the labors for the Lord's sake. That's why this chapter is filled with prayers, filled with calls to look to God. The, the Lord's work, friends, can only be done in the Lord's strength. 
something important to remember. The Lord's work can only be done in the Lord's strength. Nehemiah has known that from the beginning. Look back at chapter 1. It's been a couple months since we were there, so let's remind ourselves. Look at chapter 1. You remember that chapter 1 is basically an entire prayer. Verses 4 through um, the end of the chapter is Nehemiah's prayer in response to the news that the walls are still crumbled there in his home city. And so he knows something needs to be done. But before he does it, he prays. Because the Lord's work can only be done by the Lord's strength. So he prays. Then we see an important detail in chapter 2. Look at verse 4. The king says to him, this is Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. He gives Nehemiah this amazing opportunity. What are you requesting? Let me know what you want, Nehemiah. This is the big moment. Nehemiah can tell him what he wants. But what do we read? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and then I said to the king, before he opens his mouth to the king, he prays to God. The heavenly king is petitioned before the earthly king is engaged. And the same thing happens in our chapter. In chapter, or in verse 4 and 5, we looked at the prayer. And then in verse 6, it says they built the wall, right? He prays in verses 4 and 5. Verse 6, so we built. And the sequence reemerges in verse 9. And we prayed to our God and then set a guard as protection. So this order is not coincidental. It's key. This is, this is very significant theological uh, truth here. That if you want to set your hand to the Lord's work, you need the Lord's help. So you pray and you work, but always in that order. Paul reminds believers in the New Testament, uh, look at Ephesians 6 if you want to turn there, about the work that we have. This is Ephesians 6. Verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Why do we need to be strong in the Lord? Verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is the great enemy that we talked about already. So that's what we're dealing with. And then what does Paul say next? Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, of God. The nature of our work defies the, 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 um, Extent of our strength, right? The work is too good; or it's too great for us. So we look to God, who alone can supply what we need for the task at hand. Now, some of you are trying to fight sin on your own. You, you, you've you've got a, um, a, a sinful habit. You know what it is, and you know that it's wrong, and you want to stop it. And you think, well, if I if I do X, Y, or Z, I, I can I can get over this. If I just grit my teeth a little harder, if I just buckle down a little more, I, I can fix this. I can handle it. Some of you are trying to fight sin in your own strength. Some of you are trying to fix your marriages with your own wisdom. You're not, you're not praying. You're not on your knees before the Lord. You're not seeking godly counsel. You're just thinking, oh, if I, if, 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 if I, if I just approach it this way, if I just speak with my spouse in this way, I, I can handle it. We can figure things out. We just need to, we just need to find some kind of balance. Some of you are trying to serve in the church, relying purely on skill and charisma. Yeah, I, I like doing these things because I'm naturally good at them. But no, our work is too hard for any of this. 
We need the Lord. And when we call out to him, he'll bless us with success. And we see that in this chapter. It's really exciting. This scene of the sword and the trowel, right? Um, Nehemiah describes the threat of Israel as so pressing and pervasive that there, there's, no, um, there's no waiting it out. They've got to just move on. They have to keep on. And, uh, of course, here's where most of us would have given up. But Nehemiah saw how important the work was, and he presses on. Now, just let's remind ourselves, why is the work so important? Why is rebuilding the wall so critical and so key? Well, you'll remember that the future of Israel hangs in the balance. Their salvation hangs in the balance. We saw a few weeks back that all the messianic promises were tied to the land, right? That it was Jerusalem where the king of glory would come in, right? Lift up your heads, O you gates, that the king of glory may come in. Psalm 24. Who is this king of glory? The Lord. Strong and mighty. He is the king of glory. If you want the the Lord himself to dwell with you, to come to your rescue, well, then you need need this place, right? If there's no gates to be lifted up, if there are no ancient doors to be opened, then there can be no king to to enter in. So their determination to build the walls is because they recognize how important rebuilding the city was because rebuilding the city paved the way, literally, for the Messiah to come. That's why Nehemiah pressed on. It was so that, uh, and now this is a way we can put it, that he would never have understood. But it was so that Jesus could come. So that Jesus could come. So the work's hard and it's important. Nehemiah presses on. The enemies can't stop him. So, so what does he have the people do? Look at verse 16. Let's read that. Uh, From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. So this, the people are split into two groups. Half are workers, half are watchers. And the watchers are ready to be fighters as well. But then even the workers themselves are armed for the fight. Did you notice that? It's not just that they have these two groups. It's that the subset of the workers, even they, have um, uh, the tools to fight if need be. So verse 17. Verse 17 says... Those who carried burdens, so those who are, you know, uh, lugging the, the material back and forth, they did this in such a way that they carried with one hand and held their weapon with the other. And then the people who are building with the materials, they need both their hands, verse 18, so they have their swords strapped at their sides. Uh, on top of that, there's a trumpeter who walks around, Nehemiah, verse, uh, the end of verse 18, then the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Um, of course, that's to alert the people if an attack is being mounted. But what, what's amazing is, is this. Think about it. Nehemiah's got this amazing task, this amazing amount of work, and his workforce has just been cut in half. Now half the people are working. And then of that half working, half of them are working with just a half of their pair of hands, right? They just got the one hand now working. And uh, furthermore, the people who are working with both hands, they're half distracted. Wouldn't you be? If you have your weapon and you're, you're just thinking at any moment there's going to be an arrow coming over the walls and we're going we're to be dinner for the Ashdodites. And so the workforce is cut in half. Those who are remaining are, are really only working half as hard as they could and they're half distracted. In other words, this was not the route of simplicity that Nehemiah chose. It wasn't even the route of efficiency, but it was the way of faithfulness. It was the path of faithfulness. And so I just want to say to all of you something you know, but let's just be honest and and say it out loud. Doing the right thing is rarely ever easy. Doing the right thing is rarely ever easy. 
That's why we often don't do it. Let's just be honest. That's why. Because it, it's hard. And we don't like hard things. You know, you, maybe this week you're called to make an important decision. You're called to die to a particular sin, uh, to improve a, a particular spiritual discipline in your life. You know what the answer is. You know what you need to do uh, in order to, to make this happen. Uh, and yet you don't do it. Why? We have all kinds of excuses that we, we offer. Well, we just don't have the time. We don't have the energy. We don't have the desire. We're afraid of the consequences if we, if we do this thing. We're afraid of what people will think of us. We, we don't want to be inconvenienced, yet uh, we, we don't want to make people upset either. The list could go on, but could we just sum it up by saying this? We don't do it because it's hard. Because it's hard. Building the walls of Jerusalem was a hard task, made harder by the fact that Nehemiah lost half his workforce but what happens? The wall is still built. We read about that already in chapter 3. Remember, chapter 3 gives us the whole story in kind of abbreviated form. They start building and they complete it in one chapter. Now we're going back and we're going to back in time and we're getting into the details and we see what happened in those 50-some days in which they built the wall. But the wall was built. We think, well, if I don't go the route of simplicity or the route of efficiency, it'll never get done. When you go the way of faithfulness, God always blesses that way. God always blesses that path. When we seek his help in doing those hard things that are for his glory, he will see to it that they're done. He always, always, always blesses the way of faithfulness. And he blesses us in ways that we do not deserve. That leads to a final, very brief observation for you all tonight. Press on in your work for God. I know the enemy is greater than you can handle. The work is more than you can manage. But I want you to know that when, you're, when all is said and done, the victory is sweeter than anything you could ever imagine. And it's more than not just what you can imagine. It's more than you deserve. It's more than I deserve. We don't read of it in this chapter, nor in the book of Nehemiah. The ultimate prize at the end of their project was, in fact, that all of God's promises did, in fact, come true. Jesus entered this very city, walked through these very gates, and then eventually was crucified outside these very walls. So what did, what did Nehemiah and his people, what do they get because of their faithfulness? They get more than bragging rights among the other nations. Oh, look at us, we're, we're, a big, we're a big deal now because we have a wall. They get more than bragging rights. They get more than a spot of land, more than a place or a name in history. They get more than any earthly victory. They got salvation. They got their Messiah. He came. They got something eternal. And that does not compare, by the way, to their work, right? Building a wall isn't commensurate with living for eternity in perfected bliss with God Almighty, right? You knew that. It's not like they built the wall and God said, what can I ever give to repay you for this wall? Eternity. How about that? That seems like that would be a fair trade. No, no, no. What Nehemiah and his workers put in, great as it was, was nothing compared to what they got back in return. And the same is true for us. Maybe you need to remember that as you go back into a week of living for God's glory and fighting sin and pursuing holiness, it's a task in which you face a greater enemy than anything else in life. It's work that is greater than any other. But remember that the reward is greater too. Working for God's glory in this life ends with your glorification in the next. Does that not motivate you?
Jesus promised, the one who endures to the end will be saved, Matthew 24, 13. And in Revelation 3, he says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne because I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, isn't that amazing? Let me read that one more time. The one who conquers, Revelation 3, 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Even though our faithfulness is so weak and feeble and, and, and pathetic compared to Christ's faithfulness, we get the very same reward that he got for his faithfulness. We do not deserve that. What a, what a gracious God. And friends, he is well worth serving, working for, fighting for, no matter the threat, no matter the cost. Because when you're a Christian, you never, ever put more in than you get in return. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, we're thankful for the saints that have gone before us. And tonight we think of Nehemiah and his faithfulness and, and the builders in Jerusalem and how they show us what it means to do the work of the Lord. It's a, it's a difficult task. Um, we have the world, the flesh, and the devil fighting against us, uh, seeking to distract us from that, from that effort. But Lord, we ask that you would make us faithful before you, that we would be so motivated by your graciousness that we would put our hands to the plow, as it were, and not turn back, that we would serve the Lord heartily all our days for the sake of Jesus Christ and for his church. Amen.